I was sitting on a bench in a small church in a uh, Hindu neighborhood in uh, the island of Trinidad. Now, you might say, wait a second, uh, Trinidad is a Caribbean island. Hindu neighborhood Trinidad don't, don't seem to go together. Well, if you know a little bit about the history of the island, basically um, there had been uh, Carib people, or if you're in Venezuela, which is seven miles off the coast of uh, Trinidad, uh, Caribe people, who had lived there for, for generations. Uh, but in the late 1400s, uh, Columbus came on his third journey. He claimed the island for Spain. And over the next several centuries, it had been in Spanish control, in French control, in Dutch control, ultimately in British control. Uh, and when the British came on, they said, you know what, we want to exploit the opportunity to grow sugarcane and to grow uh, cocoa in this island, and we need people to do it. So from Africa, they imported slaves. And from India, uh, they imported indentured servants. And so now the island is about a third uh, former, you know, the, the, the descendants of slaves, uh, many of whom, about a third of the island is Muslim. About a third of the island are people who are Hindus. And a th about a third of the island are nominally Christian or atheists, and some of them claim to be both. But it's interesting that, that I was sitting in this section where, where it was a, a Hindu neighborhood, and, and, and I was sitting there on a Friday afternoon. Uh, that day, I was sitting because I had injured my leg um, uh, playing basketball, which is my injury of choice. And there I sat. Um, it was the end of a week-long program that we had run for a bunch of, uh, of children and young people in the community. And a young girl came and sat next to me. Her name was Shenny. Now, I had met Shenny uh, a week earlier when we walked through the neighborhoods to invite people to come and to uh, join us as we talked about things at the church. And, and I, as we were walking through, in their culture, you don't walk onto someone's property. You, you, you stop at the edge of the property and you yell in, and if they want to speak with you, they come out to meet you. So I had come with a couple of people to the edge of the property, and I yelled in, hello, good afternoon, and, and in a hut that did not look like it should have been um, occupied but was, was a family, and a, a woman stuck her head out, and she went back in, and then she brought out a bunch of, of young people, children, and, and one of them was, was Shenny, just a, a, just a lovely young woman, a girl. And, and, and as she approached from her Hindu background, I think the philosophy of her mother grabbed her, and she looked at her, and in a stage whisper that I could hear feet away from her, she said to Shenny, do you see their skin? It's white and clean, and they're rich, and you're poor and dark and dirty and ugly. And my heart broke, and I wanted to get down on my knees, and I wanted to hug this young girl and say, no, you are beautiful. You're created in the image of God, and he loves you so much, and he wants to have a relationship with you, but you can't do that in that culture. And it would be creepy in ours. So I just prayed. I said, God, please bring her. And he did. And throughout that week, she may have come to meet some people, but she came to know Jesus. 
And there we sat on Friday, and we sat on the bench, and she came, and she sat next to me, and she handed me something. She handed me a little piece of paper. It wasn't laminated then because I did it since then, but I've carried it with me every day since that day. And it's, a, it's the front of a Christmas card. It had been cut out, and she handed it to me. And I said, thank you. I said, what is this? And she said, it's a, it's a Christmas card. And I said, oh, Christmas. Do you know what Christmas is? And a look of horror came across her eyes because she didn't. She said, no. So I flipped it over, and, and right there I wrote Christmas in capital letter, Christmas. And I showed it to her, and I said, do you know what Christmas is? And she looked at it, struggling to answer. She said, no. And then I underlined Christ, and her, her eyes opened up. And she said, that's Jesus. That's who we've been talking about this week. And I thought, yeah, that's who it is. And we talked about Jesus. And then I asked her a question. I said, Shenny, has anyone ever told you about this? Anyone ever told you about Jesus? And she said, no, I've never heard of him until this week. And I thought about that, and I've thought about it a lot. And, and then I've gone to... To, to, to my Bible, and I see Bible verses like this one that says, for, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. There's only one. It's, the, the, it's Christ Jesus. And then I look at the, what, not what Paul said, but what, what Peter said. He says that Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, he says, this stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven, given to mankind by which we might be saved. And then I look at the, the apostle John, and he says, John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send me, he says, they did not send Jesus into the world to, to, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Because whoever believes in him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. And then I look at Jesus' own words, and he says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to get to God. And then I look at those statements, and then I look at Shenny, and I think she's never heard that message I look at all these claims of exclusivity, and then I think of theologians and teachers today, and one like Alex Zerbeg, who says about those statements, he says, these statements are direct, unequivocal, and unapologetic. They were in their day, as much as in our own, viewed with cynicism and distaste. But as the apostles became convinced of the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead and the reality that he was God in the flesh, the implication was unavoidable. There is no other Savior because no other person who is qualified to save. So, so I look on one hand and I say, oh, okay, wait a second. Jesus is the only one who can save 
And then on the other hand, my experience brings me face to face with shenies of the worlds. And, and then I look at the, the, the doctrine or the, the, you know, the, the facts. And I look at a, a website like the, the Joshua Project, which is the preeminent missiological demographic website. And, and I look at that and I see this and I, this chart, and you might not be able to read it, but it, it's, it's a breakdown of the little over 8 billion people in our world. And that top line is unreached people, people who have only an infinitesimal percentage of Christians within their you know, ethnic body. And, and these are people who have little or no opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus in their language, in their culture, in their location, in a way to which they can reasonably respond in faith. And what it says is that there are 42% of the world... 3.4 billion people live in that condition. And within that group, there's a group called frontier groups that literally have never heard of the name of Jesus and have no Christians and no churches. They have no Christian neighbors. They have no radio stations. They have no books that they can go to. They're unreached. And I look at those things and I say, Lord... What am I going to do about that? Because, because, I, because I go back to my Bible and I read it, and, and I read that, in, that Paul writes in Romans, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great promise. That's great. Okay, so people can call on the name of the Lord, but then he asks this question. He says, how can they call on the one they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them about it? And so there we are. On one hand, I've got God who loves so deeply, who created people like Shenny and who loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. And then on the other hand, I have the fact that it's only Jesus by which they can enter that relationship. And then I realize that there are people who have literally never heard of his name and never heard that message. And I ask this question, well, why should I care? And then what should I do? Why should I care? Why should I sit in suburban Pennsylvania and care that there's somebody on the other side of the world who's never heard of the name of Jesus, which is the only way to save? Well, in order to answer that question, I want to do a couple things today. I want to take us to an obscure Old Testament passage, and then I want to take us to a couple of my dearest friends, and we're going to talk to them today, all right? So this obscure passage is in the Bible uh, book of uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, and if you are taking your Bible and the chair in front of you, it's on page 296, 296. And we read there, sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Jerusalem. All right, so here's a guy, Ben-Hadab. He's the king, he's the king of Syria, or it's called Aram, and he's got a kingdom, and he's kind of warring with some area kings, and he goes to a city called Samaria, and he lays siege to it. Now, in that day, um, you, you, if you wanted to be a, a, a king that was taking places over, you had a couple of different distinct opportunities and ways to, to, to get to, uh, to overthrow a kingdom or overthrow a city. Uh, you could do a full frontal attack, which basically means you take your army, you go up, and you attack. Now, 
There's one big problem with that. In that day, most major cities, and Samaria was one of them, had a defensive mechanism called a wall. And that wall was built several stories high and very wide, wide enough to where they could ride chariots on it. They could put their army on the top of there. And as you can imagine, if you wanted to full frontal attack a city, you could expect there to be some ancillary costs to this model. Most of the cities uh, would not be very hospitable to people trying to attack them. They would throw heavy objects, they would shoot sharp objects, they would pour hot liquids from above, and if they were trying to get into the city, it would cost them a lot of soldiers. So if you said, okay, well, um, I don't need to do this quickly, I'm going to do it slowly, they could do a siege, and that's what uh, Ben-Hadad did. A siege basically would come when they would surround the city with the army. Most uh, cities of that day were, were on a river, so they would divert the river around. Excuse me. <clears throat> they would divert the river And so they would say to the people within the city, listen, we're going to be out here. Uh, You're not going to have any water. You're not going to have any food. Uh, We're not going to let anybody in. We're not going to let anybody out. Um, And when you get hungry enough, uh, you know, come see us and surrender. Uh, We'll be out here waiting. All right? So that's what happened. And one of the natural results of that was a was a famine. In fact, in this situation, we read there was a great famine in the city and the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels? What in the world does that mean? Now, we're not, we're not uh, eight centuries before Christ, so some of these things may mean something strange to us. So what was happening? There was a famine. There was no food. Ultimately, they had gone through all of their storehouses, and then they started eating things which were available but unimaginable. They were eating donkey heads. Uh, I have been in over 60 countries of our world. I've traveled uh, in all kinds of places. I can literally tell you I have never knowingly eaten a donkey head. I've never wanted to. But it gets worse than that. It says these uh, cabs of seeds, or you know, what does that mean? Well, it's really hard to translate from the Hebrew of that day into ours, but let me tell you what most scholars uh, translate it as, and some of your Bibles may have it. I'll say this de- delicately. Dove dung. Pigeon poop. Now, if you're grossed out by that, you're, you're probably in our culture. And the reality is they were eating things that were literally unimaginable. And you say, okay, well, wait a second. Could it ever get worse than that? Well, yes, it could. Let's look at the uh, passage continues. It says, as the king of Israel was passing on the wall, a woman cried, help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, listen, if Yahweh, the Lord, does not help you, where can I get help from? From the threshing floor? Implying it's not there. From the, from the wine press? It's not there. Then he asked her, okay, uh, what's the matter? And the woman said, "Um, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. And the next day she said to me, I said to her, give up your son so we can eat him. And she had hidden him. That's how bad it got. They had cannibalized her son, and she said, this other mother, she was in a breach of contract. We agreed, and now we can't find her son to eat him. Can you imagine the awful situation where people have decided that for their own appetites, for their own survival, for their own comfort, for their own lives, they're going to sacrifice their children? 
That's how awful the situation got. And that's the context in which I want to introduce us very quickly to four guys, because skip forward to the chapter 7 and verse 3, because now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance to the city gate. So, so the city gate, remember, was wide. It had big gates. There was a, a, a place there you could sit. And, and there were four men with leprosy sitting in the city gate. Now, they were suffering not only from a serious famine, but from a serious uh, disease. Leprosy at the time was uh, an incurable disease. It was a progressive disease. It was a highly transmittable disease, and it was a quarantining disease. In fact, in um, Leviticus, years earlier, the, the, it says that, that if, if someone was a leper, they were, to, you know, they were to wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover their lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean, and must live alone outside the city. So here are these guys. They're with leprosy. They couldn't go into the city because the law and the famine was there. They couldn't go out into the fields because the hostile army was there. So they parked themselves at the city gate while the famine raged and the army waited. And then their parking permit ran out. And they said to each other, listen, (laughs) why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine's there, we're going to die. If we say we're here, we're going to die. Let, let's go out to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, maybe we'll live. If they kill us, we die. So here's these guys in a hopeless situation. If I stay here, I die. If I go there, I die. If I go there, I die. I'm probably, but maybe if I go out there, they'll, you know, they'll fill us before they kill us and we can, you know, have a little bit of food. And they were hopeless. They were helpless where they sat, and they made a choice, a courageous choice to get up and move. And this is what happened when they did that, because this is what I want you to see. God did a miracle. They got up at dusk, and they went out to the camp of the Arameans, and when they reached the edge of the camp, there was nobody there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and, and a great army. And they said to each other, look, the king of the Israelites has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and they fled at dusk and they abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. And they left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. God had done a miracle. And so they, they got there and it says the, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents. They ate and they drank and they took silver and gold and clothes and they went off and they hid them and they returned and they entered another tent and they took some of those things and they went and they hid them off. And also these four guys moments before were hopeless, were helpless, were dead if they stayed, dead if they went, dead if they did nothing, dead if they did something. But because of a miracle of God in the blink of an eye, in a moment of moving, they received blessings beyond their wildest dream. They had food and more than they needed and wanted. They had drink, all the drink they wanted and needed and more. They had all of the wealth they wanted and needed and more. They had all of the clothing they wanted and needed and more. And they gorged themselves on the food stuff. They, they, they dressed themselves in red carpet worthy attire. And they stuffed their pockets with riches. And then they thought of their future. They said, hey, listen, we need to lay something up in a 401k. We got to diversify the assets a little bit here. So let's get out there and we're going to put them in a tent or in a cave somewhere where nobody can get it. So we're set for the future. And so that's what they did. They had everything they could have ever imagined for now and the future, not because of their own work, not because of their own wit, 
but because of the unmerited miracle of God. And then something happened. And I've told you this whole story really to get you to this point. Because the lepers went back into another tent, and as they stood there, this is what they said, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait till daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Look what they said, we're not doing right. They realized that the abundance of blessings that they enjoyed were available to those in the city as well. But the people in the city were unreached with the good news. The people in the city were dying without ever hearing the message that would save them. And it's just not right to withhold the message that will save from the multitude that won't survive. Now, why do I tell you that story? It's because it doesn't take a literary scholar to figure out the parallel between that, that story in the 8th century BC um, and our story today, and the, the story that God's writing in each of our lives. The Bible tells us that those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have stepped over the line and believed in him and received, accepted, understood, and received his blessing of salvation, that we, before we were in that condition, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead if we stayed, we're dead if we went, there's nothing we could have done but by and a miracle of God on the cross that was infinitely more miraculous than confusing Arameans or providing wealthy uh, riches, God saved us through the cross of Jesus Christ. By faith, we come into a relationship with him, and at that moment, we are saved, and with salvation, showered, not with donkeys and and riches and horses, excuse me, but with incredible spiritual blessings, forgiveness for all of our sins, eternal life promised to us in in heaven with Jesus. The church is a family here on earth, the Bible to guide us, the Holy Spirit to live inside us, total reconciliation from God, a relationship with him, and so, so, so much more. Blessing upon blessings, not earned, not deserved, not merited, not because of our wisdom and our wits. But you know what I see all around our world? I see people who, like the lepers of 2 Kings, have accepted those blessings, have absorbed those blessings, have enjoyed those blessings, have have understood that they have those blessings and their eternity and future is secure, but for any number of reasons, their mind never goes back to the city where they left so many unreached people behind who don't know the message. And those of us who experienced God's miraculous salvation must share it with the unreached in darkness. It's simply the right thing to do. And as we think of that scripture, I want us to think about it in flesh and blood terms. And I want to invite two friends to join me in just a second to help us uh, understand a firsthand perspective and insight um, how this all plays out in what is the largest country population-wise in the world. In India, there are 1.4 billion people, and it's the most unreached 
country in the world. Out of the basically 2,300 people groups in India, about 2,100 are considered unreached where they don't, they have very little opportunity to hear the good news. And these two friends, uh, CV and KK, I'm going to call them, um, I could give them credentials, but then you might identify them on the live stream. Um, and I'm also, but, but their real credential to me is the relationship we've had. The many years we've spent together, working together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, the many t- dozen times we've traveled in India and South Asia, the work I've seen them do because they serve with the ministry that I get the privilege of, of running, and the way I've been able to trust them with my life. There's many people in the world, and I've said this before, that you would say, oh yeah, I would trust them with my life. Uh, these guys, I can say, I have trusted them with my life. And so far, they haven't let me down. There's time. So. Now, before I welcome them up to the stage, let me do a little bit of something that uh, is a little bit different. I want to address those who are watching on the live stream, okay? Because something's going to happen uh, strange to your screen in a couple of moments. When I invite these brothers to come up here, you're going to see a New Story Church logo, all right? Uh, that's intentional. Uh, the reason is that these two men are, who are going to join us are actively involved in significant Christian ministry in areas that are highly dangerous. In countries and in specific regions where they serve, um, sometimes the government and very often radical groups are looking to uh, oppose people like them and to target them. In fact, they have been targeted Uh, They've been called before the government. They've been uh, surveilled and threatened. Uh, Some of our mutual colleagues and friends in ministry have been tortured and jailed and are still in jail. And some have been killed for doing what these two men do. And frankly, I don't want that to happen to them. So uh, we're going to turn off the visual part, uh, the Audible part will stay. Keep listening for the next few minutes, and we're going to jump back in visually later. Um, you may be saying, "Well, the people in this room could get out their cell phones and could, you know, in, you know, they could out them that way." Please don't do that. <laughs> we're going to take that chance. So, um, as we continue, would you please help me welcome uh, CV and KK to the stage? So um, we've been thinking about uh, the, uh, the fact that uh, there are unreached people in our world, the, the part of the world in which you live and serve. Um, KK, tell us a little bit about w- w- the unreached and the frontier groups in uh, India and South Asia. As you have already mentioned, because um, 2,100 plus Unreached people groups are there in India. Among them are, our main focus is frontier people groups. By the word frontier means, these are the people who have never heard the gospel, not even single Christian among them. So no Bible translation among them, no mission agency working among them, not even single missionary is reaching among them. So we identified those people groups, frontier people groups in India, There are 1,276 frontier people groups in India who had never heard gospel. Out of them, 
938 million hindus in india just in the northern part of india you have, we, we have the opportunity to share gospel 637 million who have never heard the name of jesus christ not even once in their lifetime these are the people because when you take the 1040 window in the perspective of the world you see five out of every six unreached people are in india five out of every six yeah. and only one in 10 missionaries work among the unreached that's where we have the opportunity that's it yeah. cv um how did you become called to reach the unreached when i was about 10 years old in 1952 october 11 the lord saved me by his grace <laughs> so so what what you need to know is we're used to preaching with uh you know 2000 people sitting on a dried uh rice paddy uh, without <laughs> microphones so so yes. you know, go, go ahead <laughs> when i was 10 years old in 1952 october 11 the lord by his grace saved me when i was 14 i obeyed the lord in baptism and when i was 15 i started preaching from the beginning i had an undying desire to be spreading the gospel of jesus christ where it is not known because i came to realize 99% of the evangelistic efforts that are done by churches is done to already evangelized areas 99% of the missionaries are going to places where they are already heard the gospel then i came to realize every person on the planet earth has a right to hear the gospel at least one time in their life people are going to easy places and the lord spoke to me caleb said give me this mountain go to the difficult places and so i did not want to do that i wanted to be a rich man and i told the lord many times lord please make me a rich man you will never regret <laughs> i will give even 50% of my income to you i meant it i was planning to go to vancouver canada or kamloops or calgary where many of my family members were living six months i prayed to the lord i came to realize there will be no peace in my heart unless i obey his perfect will he told me in my heart it is not your money that i want i want you and so i resigned my job when i was a high school teacher and went to preach the gospel of jesus and one incident i would tell you i will not tell the exact place but it is in a place in andhra pradesh there is a tribe called the lambara tribe in 1983 when i went there there was not a single christian and we did the prayer walk in two or three villages and then asked the lord lord bind the powers of darkness and there would be churches here by your grace it took one year one elderly man accepted christ as personal savior he was the leader of that religion satan stronghold was broken 
and many people began to accept Christ and we had to baptize them and when they were going to be baptized i had the great joy of giving them bible names or christian names we who find it difficult to give name to our children and grandchildren having long discussion i had no problem from genesis to the book of revelation there are so many good and beautiful names and so on that day we are born many marthas many marys many abraham many titus many john many caleb and in that way now when we went two months ago to that place we have 25 churches by god's grace Amen. and so that is what is happened in my life yeah. and i am excited about it yeah it's great go ahead so kk um um CB mentioned people uh, in a, in the Lombardy tribe coming to faith in Christ uh, out of darkness never hearing um is God moving in India and what does it look like when somebody comes to faith out of that culture out of that context in that location when they reject the past and claim to know Jesus as savior what happens to them um in their environment yeah if a person needs to accept christ the first question we ask is are you willing to die for christ mm. uh, before we give water baptism uh, we walk them through uh, the repercussions of accepting christ but before we give water baptism we ask them that question particularly are you willing to die there is one young man uncle who was from the northern part of india at the age of 16 he wanted to follow christ as his personal savior so i told him are you willing to die for christ yes i am willing to die for christ brother kiran are you um, are you willing to give me water baptism i said if you are ready i am ready <laughs> but the village lady came to know that he is going to take water baptism she came with long rifle kept the rifle on our heart and said that i am going to shoot you if you give water baptism i said uh, are you willing to take still he said yes i am willing to take so i said we are ready let us pray we prayed the whole night in the early morning time we gave water baptism his father came to know that he took water baptism his father was so angry he said now onwards you are no longer my son leave the house he was banished from his family he was banished from the village the village lady said that i i don't want to see you again in my village he came out started living under the tree without food without shelter he started sleeping there but his passion is to share gospel he came to us and said brother kiran give me opportunity we wanted to i wanted to join the team and share gospel constantly he used to reach six unreached villages continuously with our team by staying there no pro, no food no close to where but staying under the open sky one fine day when he was sharing gospel radicals came from backside with 5 liter can of acid they poured from the neck to the toe his entire body was burned completely everything the skin was peeled off we rushed him to the hospital on the hospital stretcher he was screaming and crying loudly i was really in in deep down pain by seeing this young man and i asked him brother nitish are you sad because you accepted christ as your personal savior brother nitish said no no brother i be, i am not sad because i accepted christ as my personal savior i am sad if i die today who will share gospel with my family 
if i die today who will share gospel with my village he said this is my last wish can you go to my family and bring my father here i said that is like committing suicide if i go to your house your father will literally kill me he said this is my last wish went to his house knocked the door his father opened while by seeing me he was very angry he said you you came to my house how dare you you are the one who baptized my son you are the one who converted him and he started slapping me continuously he said i told him your son is in the hospital at the death bed he wanted to see you he became more furious all through the way when we reached hospital he was scolding me by seeing his son from far distance in the hospital he could not control himself 16 year old young man control himself he came near to his son slapped him and told i told you not to accept christ i told you not to follow christ this is what these christians will do to you he was very angry but his son in tears caught his father's hand begging him father i have a hope if i die today he shared gospel that entire evening in the same hospital his father bent his knees to christ this is what it means to follow christ in india we have 18 martyrs 18 of our missionaries became martyrs we have 57 of our missionaries who are in the prison right now every day the jail superintendent comes and says are you christian yes i am christian open your shirt he beats them continuously they pay very high price for accepting christ from the moment of taking water baptism they are banished they are killed they are they are sent away from the villages their food supply is stopped they cannot send their children to school they go through all yeah. now we have 18 of the widows uncle who paid a high price their husbands paid a high price but still serving the lord in the same villages yeah and and it it is very costly in in many of those environments not not so much in the large cities not so much in the very south uh, but in many of the places where you're serving it is very costly to be a christian but people choose to do it because they realize they're dead if they stay there they're dead if they go this way they're dead if they have that way but the miracle of god is that they can have eternal life yeah. Now you're serving um in South Asia and have over 650 indigenous missionaries uh, serving under you. There are others who well, let me ask you this. What does it take financially to support one of those missionaries per month? Hmm. An average support for a missionary in rural areas is about $70 per month. But in the cities and towns it will be sometime from $100 to $150 a month. Mm-hmm. So 650 are now being supported and they have their their salaries and stipends being paid but there are others who are serving how many are serving without yet having somebody to support them. There are 146 missionaries who stepped out in faith trusting God for all their needs and without any support they are continuing to serve the lord mm-hmm. and god in his time will provide support through people and so that is our prayer and they're reach- reaching many 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 villages and tribes and individuals with the good news of jesus now um cv i want to for us to kind of come towards a, a wrap up here but i i want you to expound on something that i've heard you say a number of times mm-hmm. 
because all of what we've talked about, uh, people who are unreached, people who are suffering when they come to Christ, people who are you know, deprived, all that sounds very, very negative. But you've said to me, and I've heard you say to others, that this we serve not because of that. We serve, this is a winning day game. What does that mean? The church of Jesus Christ is founded on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is growing because of the martyrdom of God's people. Where is it written? We have seen in Matthew chapter 16, very clearly the Lord said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? There would be permanent enmity because of satanic forces fighting against the cause of Jesus Christ. But the church will never die. It will always grow. And for example, in persecution that is increasing all over the North India, and some of you may have heard about Manipur also, 68,000 Christian people are living in 167 internally displaced release camps in Manipur state where I worked for more than 40 years. I know every mountain, every village that is burned and including the 500 plus churches that are burned. I know it. But then is the church dying because of the state-sponsored, orchestrated persecution that happens? No, church will never die. Of course, God's people, they are providing them food, clothing, whatever needed and medicines. But more than that, for example, God has enabled us to have two gospel teams that are going to these 167 relief camps with counseling, preaching, singing. And the man who is one of the main preachers is a man who accepted Christ in 2003, February 23, in one of our gospel meetings. He was a commander of an insurgent group. These people are reporting to me every day, Sir, 30 people accepted Christ. 40 people dedicated their lives. And like this, work is growing on. No, Satan cannot stop it. Why? Because the Bible says very clearly, it is God's plan. There should be an ecclesia, a church in every tribe and every tongue. Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7. A multitude of people which no man could number from every tongue and tribe will be there to worship. Nobody can stop that. Matthew chapter 24 verse 14, it says, The preaching of the gospel of this kingdom shall be done unto all nations, then shall the end come. John chapter 10 verse 16 says, I do have other sheep who are not of this flock. I will surely bring them. God will bring them. Nobody mm -hmm. can stop. Church mm -hmm. will be triumphant. We are on a winning time, winning game. I am a part of it. You are a part of it. What a great joy. If you have a part, if I have a part, to bring the last tribe on earth to this kingdom of Jesus Christ, let us all be excited. Amen. Amen. All right. 
We need to wrap for now, and in a moment or two, we're going to put the uh, video back on. So I'm going to ask you guys uh, to head on down, but before you do, I want to pray for you, okay? Father, thank you for my brothers. Thank you for the way that you did uh, come into their life and uh, mine at a time of hopelessness, at a time of helplessness. Thank you that you have saved us, and thank you for these guys who are such an example, such a witness uh, to me, of people who know and love and serve you with a deep, deep passion because they've gone from death to life and from darkness to light. I pray that you'll sustain them, that you'll lift them up, that you'll protect them, and that you'll use them greatly until, as uh, C.V. said, the last tribe, the last individual comes to know you and you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so as uh, as Bob comes up, he's going to give a little benediction, but I wanted to read you something that was uh, from Augustine of Hippo. As we talk about being a, a group that's transformed, um, his prayer uh, was this, Lord, our Savior, you have warned us that you will require much of those to whom much is given. Grant that we whose lot is cast in so goodly a heritage may strive together the more abundantly to extend to others what we so richly enjoy.